So we are continuing our study through the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 11, and we are looking at the life of Jesus. It's important to gather up the context. It's important to think carefully about where this passage occurs. This passage occurs in a particular context. Jesus has now spent the last pretty much three and a half years. He's, he's weeks away from the cross. So he has spent three and a half years out preaching the gospel, out speaking of repentance, doing marvelous miracles, all the great things that, that you, you know, raising the dead and the blind seeing and the lame walking and the deaf hearing and just all of those things have been occurring over and over and over. Great miracles have occurred. Most of his ministry has centered up in the north in the Galilean region. He has now moved away from the Galilean region down into the southern part of the country. If you know Jerusalem and, and if you know Israel, you'll realize that Jerusalem is down in the southern part. Jerusalem is the capital city. This is where the uh, urbanites live, right? This is the, the people who live in, in the southern part of the country of Israel consider themselves a little more <clears throat> sophisticated than you know, those fishermen up there in the north. Uh, they see themselves as those who are really in with God. They have the temple. It's down there in Jerusalem. They have the priesthood. They have the sacrificial system. If you want to worship God from anywhere in the state of Israel, you need to go south. You need to go down to Jerusalem. So they look at themselves as kind of uh, a bit of a cut above everyone else in the country. So when Jesus comes, they may not have ever left Jerusalem. They may not have left the southern areas to go up to see Jesus up there. They've heard of him. But now they actually have an opportunity for the first time uh, in, a, in a specific public way. Jesus has now made his way south. He's around Jerusalem. You'll recall, uh, not to completely reread the passage or by any means re-preach it, but you'll recall that Jesus has cast out a demon who has made a man mute. And he immediately begins to speak. And everyone is amazed. This is, this is fantastic. This is, this is wow. I mean, we've heard about it. We know that up there in, in the Galilean region. But to actually watch, this, wow. And then, of course, just as they said up north, they're now saying down south, the religious leaders are like, yeah, hey, look, this isn't that big a deal. This guy is only doing this by the power of Beelzebub. That's all. It's, it's, he's just empowered by the devil himself. And, of course, we went over how just crazily improbable that is. And Jesus goes over that. Well, now Luke says, okay, what, so what happened here? And we look at verse 29. The crowds began to increase. Jesus has got a ministry. He has this ability to do all kinds of great and marvelous things. It's actually not all that surprising uh, he, he has focused in the north, and he's now moved to the south. And so people who didn't have the opportunity to pack up and to head north, have, uh, here Jesus is. So the crowds begin to increase. People are finally showing up. Jesus gets up to speak, and I mean the place is just wall-to-wall people. You think, wow, this is great. This is good. This, yeah, okay. You can imagine the disciples kind of looking at one another, you know. 
Peter and Andrew, hey, whew, look at that. You know, we're finally going somewhere here. <clears throat> I mean, we might have the kingdom coming in here any minute now. I mean, we're finally, look, we, we had this, this southern campaign was the way to go. Uh, yeah, this was the way to go. We got down here and look at the people. Anytime now, Jesus is going to, I mean, he's just going to embrace the crowd and, uh, wow, he, we're going to anoint him king and this is, we're going to get them 12 thrones and I can hardly wait to sit on mine. And, um, yeah, uh, not so much. Not so much. Um, the fact is that when the crowds increased, he begins to say to them, this generation is a wicked generation. And you can imagine the disciples look at one another going, oh boy, okay. We've heard this before. We, you know, uh, I wonder what he's up to anyway. You can imagine them just looking at one another like, what is the plan here anyway? We finally have the crowds. The fact is, we love the crowds, right? Uh, who in the world doesn't want their numbers to increase, right? Who doesn't want things to go good? Particularly as Americans, you know, we very much measure how things go. Um, there have been uh, multiple attempts, often successful in- attempts in our nation. There have been churches out there that have decided that we are going to be the largest church in America. And we're going to do what it takes to get there. And, and they've actually done it. They've succeeded. Uh, one particular, and I'm not going to name names here. It's, it's not, you don't need to name names. I, I suspect most of you would know some version of these kinds of churches. But there are churches out there that deliberately set out to say, we are going to get people through the door. Um, there was a particular church that, that they deliberately said, okay, we are going to kind of hold off on the discipleship thing. The moment will come when it will be appropriate to do discipleship. But first of all, we've got to get them through the door. So we're going to get music that is just top of the line music. We are going to put on a concert level music on Sunday morning. And they did. We are, we are going to have paid professional musicians. We are going to have some of the biggest names come and sing at our church. And, and they did. And the, and the speech that we give, when we get up to talk, we're only going to talk about relevant things. We're going to speak to people's felt needs. Are you lonely? Well, Jesus will be your friend. Are, are you... Frightened? Well, Jesus will protect you. Uh, you know, you, you, get, you get the idea, right? And so they put a, a huge amount of money into all of the various things they did. They, they talked and got people to, to back them. And, of course, once this thing got going, it became easier and easier. And, and next thing you know, everyone was a professional. They are professional Sunday school teachers. They are professional nursery workers. I mean, everyone, we just paid everybody. It's not that you couldn't volunteer. You, you could, but... They, if something needed to be done, they just hired someone to do it. And all the time, while they were doing this, there was a deliberate attempt to not say anything that might offend someone. You don't want to get up and talk about the blood. You don't want to talk about hell. My goodness, you know. You start telling people they're sinners. I mean, how's that going to go? And so you just kind of leave that off to the side and talk about how to make your marriage better. I mean, who doesn't want their marriage to go better? How to make your kids better? 
Be more obedient. Who doesn't want to hear about that? I, wait, I, I'd like to hear a sermon on that. I, you know, who doesn't want to hear? And so you just get up and, and they're kind of sermonettes. In fact, they might actually do a play instead of actually preach a sermon. Lots of stories, always entertaining, um, and surveys. Oh, they did surveys. They surveyed everything. They surveyed, they asked questions, you know, are, are the seats comfortable? Is the lighting good? How's the sound? Too loud? Too soft? How's the parking? You know, did you find a good parking spot? Were you able to get in here? Do you know where the bathrooms are? You know, they, they surveyed everything, everything to make sure that everyone was happy. We want you happy. This is going to be the greatest day. This is going to be just so happy. Everything's going to be great. And, and well, as, as you can imagine, um, well, that got a crowd. They got a crowd, all right. They got up to 25,000 people on any given Sunday. 25,000. They had, they had satellite churches where they just, you know, they, they put everything up on a big screen on the front. And the congregation would just kind of come. And you, you, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how you do that with church and all that. But that, they did it. They wrote books. They wrote books on church growth. Let, let us tell you how we did it. And churches bought the books and said, this is what we need to do. We've got to cut all this hell stuff out here. Because stop talking about hell. I mean, my goodness, you're never going to get anybody to show up, you know. Um, just speak about hope. It's all about hope. Uh, don't, don't talk about having to die to yourself every day. I mean, what kind of a message is that, you know. Now, to give them their due, about 20 years into this, 20 years, they were... They were sincere people. They were, they were saved people. They were godly, the people in leadership. They were godly people. They had a program for everything. They, everything was programmed. They were wonderful administrators. They, they administrated everything. They had small groups that you know, everybody needed to be part of a small group. And, but they realized after 20 years, you know what? The moment to actually preach that sermon on hell and to tell people that, that you need to die to yourself every day. You need to crucify yourself daily. You know, we have to be honest. The moment has never arrived. We've never got to that moment. It's not the moment now. We're quite sure that if we actually got up on some Sunday morning and told everyone that they needed to crucify themselves, that the next Sunday would be, you know. Um, yeah. So they realized that they weren't making disciples. So they come up with a program to better disciples. I, I wish I were exaggerating. I'm, I'm not. That, that, was, that was actually their actually their solution. We have a program for everything, so let's make a discipleship program while we're at it. You know, make people real disciples. Anyway, um, numbers are not all bad, I, and I don't want to give that impression. The fact is that um, the Bible does speak in regards to numbers. Just in case you hadn't noticed, there's actually a book in the Bible called Numbers. So it's not like God isn't counting. I mean, the good shepherd who had 100 sheep and one was missing, well, how did he know? Well, he knew because he counted the 99 so that he could figure out that one was missing. That's, that's how he knew. It's, it's, it's okay to keep track and you want to see, you want to be able to look out at your congregation, I do, and try to keep track of who's here. Jesus had the 12, then he had the 70, uh, and then he had, you know, eventually there'll be the 144,000, right? Keeping track of numbers is not a bad thing. The, the problem comes when you think that the only way to measure success is to have more numbers. Ask Gideon about that. 
Gideon shows up with 32,000 soldiers. God's like, yeah, no, that's, that's not going to work. I don't. If you win this battle with 32,000 soldiers, you're going to think you did it. I need you to just get up there and tell anybody who wants to go home can go home. And so you know, off they go. And, I, and that's still too many. Get them over there to that brook and let's see how that, let, let's get the smallest group. You know, some people have tried to make a big deal that, you know, the guys who lapped and the guys who stuck their face in. I, God just picked the smaller group. That's all. Okay, 300. You went from 32,000 to 300. Now we can get something done. This, this shows what God is talking about as far as numbers. It's not a matter of, well, do we have more and more and more and more? It's, are we keeping track of the people we have and loving them and taking care of them and doing the work of God? And if that happens to be with lots of folks or not that many folks, the question is, are we being faithful to what God wants us to do? This is what matters. Here we have this crowd that's increasing. Jesus has got greater numbers. I mean, the, it's really, from the American perspective, boy, is this going good. Jesus must really be doing something. Look at all the people. Jesus looks out there and realizes, okay, we have more people, but we have a problem. We don't have more repentance. We don't have people coming here to repent of their sin. They're not coming here to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. They're not coming here to fall at his feet and worship him as the Son of God. Um, Look at his ministry. He can heal any disease. It doesn't matter whoever comes. He he can heal anything. People come. He casts out demons. He gets sight. He interrupts funerals. Wait a minute. Ah, let's let's bring this guy back. You know, Jesus can do, of course he can get a crowd. Who couldn't get a crowd doing that? But why are they there? They're there for their good. They're not there to repent. They're not turning to God. They're simply there to get. I want to get. And this is where you have to be careful about doing numbers. You have to be careful. If you see the church as nothing more than like a restaurant and the menu is the bulletin, and people do church shopping, and you know that when they come shop your church, well, you better make sure that there's variety on the menu and that people like the music and people... No, I'm not suggesting you have bad music or that you don't set out to take care of folks. But if it's, if it's like, okay, we're a business and we've got to run this like a business. Actually, we're not a business. We're not trying to run this like a business. We're a ministry. And we are trying to equip the saints for the ministry. We're not trying to build a business here. We're trying to provide people with the truth of God to transform them so that the spiritual gift that God has given you and me and everyone here has one, that we exercise our spiritual gift to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. That's what's going on. That's what the church is. It's, It's important that you be involved, that we don't just hire a bunch of professionals. They don't just hire someone to do whatever job needs to be done. It's actually important for us to be involved in the work of the church. God is perfectly willing to use us. The problem that you end up with here is that the crowds gather, but that's not, that's, that's not, that's not the final measure of what's going on. Elijah, he, he prays to God, you know, that after the Mount Carmel deal, right? We, we kill the prophets of Baal, and, and then he runs for his life, and God's like, what are you doing out here in the wilderness? How come you're not back there ministering? Well, Lord, 
I'm it. I'm the last prophet left, and, and, and they seek my life. God's like, you know what? I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. God is at work, and maybe you don't see it. Maybe it's not apparent to you, but God is at work. Even though Elijah doesn't see it, God is getting stuff done. The, people, the people's lives are being transformed. God is doing things. If you're going to, for instance, Jesus says to his disciples, if you go into a city and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next city. Well, how are you going to know that if you don't pay attention to some version of numbers, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like we can completely ignore numbers, but it's not the measure. What you do is just go to the next place. Paul stayed at Corinth. Why? Because there was an open door of ministry. Because there were people who were listening. So he stayed there for quite a while. So Jesus gets this crowd, but he knows their thoughts, and he knows that it's just the crowd. It doesn't say that the disciples were increasing. That's the problem. We're not getting more disciples. Oh, we've got more people, but we're not getting more disciples. And if you don't have disciples, you have a problem. So Jesus stands up and says, this generation is a wicked generation. And again, you can imagine the 12 looking at one another, right? Um, Now, stop and think for a second about this generation. Stop and think about the first century Jewish life. This is the most religious people in the face of the planet. If you read the Old Testament, and I certainly hope you do, um, it's embarrassing how quickly and how easily Everybody in the Old Testament was willing to just leave the true God and, and worship the Baals and the Asheroths. And I mean, they had the sun, the moon. They had more gods. Every time you turned around, they were running off trying to find some of the God to worship besides the true God. But when you get to the first century, they, they've gotten over that. In fact, when, Jesus sends, when God sends them away, you know, the, the 70 years in exile, when they come back from that exile... Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. When they come back from that, they never fall into idolatry again. From that moment, when they come back, they worship the true God. So by the time you come to the first century, now we kind of look at the Pharisees and we think, you know, we think badly of them because we read our Gospels and and their outward uh, religiosity is, of course, condemned by God in the strongest of terms. But if if you don't have the teaching of Jesus to bring you the truth about that, you look at the Pharisees and think, man, these are the most religious guys ever. And, and of course they were. I mean, they got up in the morning thinking about how can I keep the law of God? They lived all day long trying to keep the law of God and went to bed trying to keep the law of God. And so if you're looking for a religious generation, I mean, this is it. And these guys permeate society. They're all over the place. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone is, everyone is trying to be more like the Pharisees if you can be. You wicked generation, you. Who's actually listening to Jesus? Who actually comes to Jesus? Oh, the tax collectors, the people who live immoral lives, the the liars. These are the people coming to Jesus. Come to find out, at the time of Jesus, the immoral people became disciples. And the religious people? They, they did nothing but fight with him. And so when the crowd comes, this crowd is made up of a bunch of religious people. They're very religious. 
but they're not repentant. In fact, they don't think they need to repent. Oh, we'd love to be healed. That's good. We're happy that you're healing people. But we're not really coming to you for internal salvation. He says to them, they've asked him, you know, show us a sign. This generation seeks for a sign. I'm not going to give any sign to you guys. You're going to get, here's the last sign you're going to get. This is the, this is the only sign that, that you're going to get, you know, from here on out. The sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, we know from Matthew, because uh, he gives a little more detail, the sign here is the, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus will die. He will be in the tomb for three days. And then he will rise from the dead. And no matter who you are, and no matter what in the world it is you, you think about Jesus or anything else, you are going to be able to look at that sign and everyone is still going to have one more opportunity to respond positively. You want a sign? Here you go. Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Uh, what sign were they looking for? Because they said, you know, show us a sign and then we'll believe. And you, you kind of look at them like, wait, the blind receiving their sign, lame walking, and, you know, bringing people back from the dead, this isn't doing it for you? I mean, exactly what is it you think you want to see here? I don't know. You want to watch the constellations be rearranged in the sky? I mean, why? You, you want angels to show up? Well, talk to the shepherds. They were actually there, and the angels did, in fact, show up at his birth. Um, the fact is, Jesus had the capability. We know from the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as snow. Jesus has the capacity to this crowd. Standing right there, Jesus could have looked at them and, and gone, okay, watch this, right? He could have Transfigured before them. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? In fact, when Jesus transfigures before the three disciples, on the way down the mountain, he says to them, don't tell anybody that you saw this until after the resurrection. Why? Well, okay. Think this through. Jesus actually does this. Just, you know, stop for a moment and imagine that Jesus does, in fact do this great sign. He actually performs the sign of the transfiguration for this crowd. What would they do? They would be forced to acknowledge, you are who you say you are. You are the Son of God. You are our Messiah. You absolutely, unquestionably come from God. Okay. One, the faith is not, you know, we've got a faith issue here. Two, what do they all conclude? So obviously you're now going to overthrow the Romans and set yourself up as our great political savior. And oh, by the way, any thrones you set up, we're going to go sit on them because, well, I mean, obviously we are worthy to sit on any throne you're going to set up. In fact, it's our job to rule over the nations. When our Messiah comes, he's going to lead us to great political victory, great military victory, great political, governmental victory. And then we are going to sit and rule and reign over all the other nations. That's us. We're the people of God. We're going to rule. That's, that's what they think. And if Jesus had actually done this sign, which they so desperately think they want to see, if Jesus had done that, well, well what would have happened? Oh, they'd have acknowledged who he was, and then they'd have expected him to defeat the Romans. 
And you know what? He wouldn't have. He still wouldn't have overthrown the Romans. Think about Judas for a moment. Just think about Judas. What is Judas really? Seriously, Judas, what are you doing here? Well, what Judas is doing here, that's kind of interesting. It's Del Rio, right? We're in the migratory path, by the way, of these butterflies. So, Anyway, so think about Judas, right? What is Judas doing? Judas is in here with Jesus for the specific purpose of what works out for him. In fact, we know that Judas will eventually betray Jesus when, remember the woman breaks the alabaster box and it's, it's a precious ointment and she pours it on his feet. And Judas says, well, why don't we sell this and uh, give the money to the poor? And it says, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he had the bag. He had the money bag because this worked out good for him. Judas is only in this because it works out good for him, which is why he betrays Jesus. If Jesus had performed this miracle, if he had transformed before them and given them whatever kind of sign it was they thought they wanted, what you would have ended up with is an entire crowd of Judases. They'd have all thought, this is going to be the greatest thing ever for us. But no repentance. There's no repentance. There's no sense of sinfulness. There's no sense of who are we to stand before God? Because the fact is that Jesus has already given them all the information they need to bring them to their knees. They, John preached. Jonah, well, here, so let, let, let's keep going. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. But what was the sign of Jonah? I mean, Jonah's life, we know from Matthew specifically, his three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, but also for these people, the ministry of Jonah was to go and to preach the truth. So Jonah went and he preached the truth. These people, you can only feel sad for them. The people of Nineveh repented of the preaching of Jonah. Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. So will the Son of Man be to this generation. Just as Jonah was to the Ninevites, so Jesus is to this generation. The queen of the south, verse 31, the queen of Sheba, she will rise up with the men of this generation in the judgment and condemn them. If you're Jewish, wait, the queen of Sheba is a Gentile. She's going to rise up on the day of judgment and judge us? How could that possibly happen? We are the people. We sit in judgment on others. They don't sit on judgment of us. Uh, nope, this is what Jesus says. Jesus is trying one last time to look at this group of people and to help them see truth. I don't, I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying this with any sense of anger at all. I think he's saying it loud enough for people to hear, and I think he's stating it plainly to them. But I don't, I, I don't know that he's mad. I don't, I don't know that there's any kind of... He's just trying to say the truth to them. Look, folks, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. So will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south, who they all knew, by the way. It wasn't like he had to explain who this was. She is going to rise up with the men of this generation. She's going to rise up with you guys. And at the judgment, she's going to condemn you. 
because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here in your midst. And by the way, you didn't have to go to the ends of the earth to hear Jesus. He's literally standing right there in front of you. And this Gentile woman heard about the wisdom of Solomon. She heard about the great works of Solomon. She heard about the great things that Solomon was doing. But Solomon didn't do any miracles. He was a great guy. I mean, he had great wisdom. He built all kinds of great buildings. When she shows up, she's like, well, I heard about the glory of your kingdom, but I mean, the half wasn't told to me. This was... This is just astounding. She acknowledges the God of Solomon when she sees his works. You get those dots, right? I mean, Jesus is looking at him like, wait a minute, the Queen of Sheba, this Gentile, comes from far away to hear Solomon and to see the works that he has done, and she repents. And here you guys are in the midst of the works of Jesus, which he's doing right here in front of you, And there are much greater works than Solomon. And the wisdom of Jesus? Go ahead. See what you can do. Take Jesus on. Go ahead. Have an argument with Jesus. Have a a spiritual argument with Jesus. Tell him what Moses said. See how that all goes. How it goes is that he eventually gets them to where they just shut up. They're like, "Don't, don't, don't say anything. I mean, he embarrasses us every time. I mean, his knowledge of the word of God and his wisdom and his ability to bring forth the word of God, it just, it just devastates them. A greater than Solomon is standing here in front of you. And he's doing much greater works than Solomon ever did. And if a woman, a Gentile woman, from hundreds of miles away, will come and be converted, how do you think it's going to go for you? Did Solomon make the blind see, or the lame walk, or the deaf hear, or the dumb speak? Of course not. Solomon didn't do any of that. But Jesus does. As if that weren't bad enough, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at this generation of the judgment, and they too will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was the subject of a miracle. He was swallowed by the great fish and spent three days in its stomach and got spit out. But Jonah didn't do any miracles. Jonah didn't show up at Nineveh and raise the dead, or make the blind see, or the lame, you know, he didn't do any of that. He just got up and he preached. Oh, by the way, the judgment of God is going to fall on this city. You people are wicked. And God's judgment is going to fall on you. And if you actually read Jonah's, the, the book, it doesn't even say, now he probably said, but maybe not, unless you repent. I, I don't think it actually says unless you repent. Because Jonah is really not happy about preaching repentance to these people. In fact, when they do repent, he's upset about that. So Jonah just goes and says, the judgment of God is going to fall on you all. But he knows, he knows they're going to repent. That's why he didn't want to go. He says to God, I I told you, this is what, I knew you were long-suffering. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were a God who was going to give them forgiveness. This is why I ran the other way. He's really upset the Ninevites. And by the way, this is the largest recorded Revival and all of the Bible. This is the largest number of people at any one time. It could end up when they were putting sackcloth and ashes on the, on the animals. You, you couldn't get more repentant than these people. And you couldn't get a more miserable prophet who preached the truth to them. And Jesus is saying to them, 
if you think it's going to go bad for Nineveh, wait till it's you guys. Jesus is saying someone greater than Jonah is here. Did, did Jonah do any miracles? No. Jonah just went and preached. And at the preaching of Jonah, people repented. And oh, by the way, you guys aren't repenting. There's no repentance. Oh, you all want to come get healed. You, want, you, you hope I can take another few fish and loaves and, and give you all a free meal. And you all want to see the show. You all want to see all kinds of great stuff happen. But the fact is, you need a show. Jonah just got up and preached, and they repented. And a greater than Jonah is here. What's, what's really important for, for us to get from this passage here, we have a generation, we live in a world that is not particularly repentant, right? We live in a world that doesn't really want to hear. But just like Jesus, we need to speak to them. I, Jesus is... This isn't anger, right? This isn't even idle threats. These are not idle threats. These are genuine. Life is short. This is your moment. If you were waiting to see a sign from God, wait no more. The mute guy just spoke. I mean, this is it. This is the moment to repent. It shows us the kindness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the graciousness of Jesus. I mean, he could have called down fire and killed them all. He could have called down a legion of angels to draw out their sword and just slay everyone. When he gets before Pilate, Pilate's like, I, you know, I have the power to release you. Uh, actually, you don't have any power except what comes from my father. And do you think I couldn't say the word and get 12 legions of angels to come and and release me? You think Jesus couldn't call angels down right here to stand? You think Jesus couldn't have given this message with two angels standing on either side of him? Of course he could have. Of course he could have. But he doesn't. He's still appealing to these folks, and he's appealing to them with grace and with compassion and with kindness and trying to help them think this through. God is going to have a judgment and you're going to stand at it. Stop and think clearly how that's going to go is what he's, he's trying to help these folks think about this. And by the way, you should realize that the people of Nineveh are going to stand up and condemn you. And the Queen of Sheba is going to come and condemn you. The judgment is going to come and, and it's going to be made plain and clear just how much light you had and just how much availability you had. Look at our own society. Look at how freely the gospel, how, I, I, you know, I'm on here talking. I'm online. And anyone who wants to can get online and, and listen to the message. Not just me. There are thousands of men of God this very morning up preaching the gospel. You can still buy the Bible, sit down and read it. You can get it for free online, any, any number of locations. They, this generation will be called to account for that, and it would be important for us to kindly warn them, help them recognize there is going to be a tremendous amount of accountability. And by the way, life is short. And we don't have to be mad and angry about it. We don't have to, we don't have to, 
It's not necessary to be as kind as you can be. Don't worry, they'll still hate you. You can just be nice. But we do have a responsibility and an obligation to speak truth. Speak the truth with love. That's why we're commanded to speak the truth with love. Be kind about it. Be as compassionate as you can be. I think Jesus is being kind and compassionate to this generation of people. He's trying to warn them. He's trying to get them to see. I don't, don't, don't picture Jesus giving this sermon with you know, anger and fire in his eyes. Jesus is giving this with compassion. Jesus is trying to warn these people. Do you understand? Someone greater than Solomon is standing here. Someone greater than Jonah is standing here. You have every reason to repent. And if you don't, they're going to stand up at the day of judgment and you're going to end up condemned. And Jesus is trying to help them see so that that won't be them. And of course, we do see that once Jesus dies and the resurrection occurs, the fact is, the fact he says to his disciples, you'll do greater works than I did. What was he talking about? Well, on the day of Pentecost, when they get up and preach and thousands repent. Jesus didn't have thousands repent. Jesus came and lived his life, um, and he preached. He sure preached to thousands. But when you actually get to the time after the crucifixion, I got 70 people gathered in an upper room. That's it. That, that's it. That's, that's it. But they go out, of course, and the power of the Spirit of God, and if you read the book of Acts, it's not long, and they've managed to thousands, tens of thousands of people. And of course, all of those folks have gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and then they end up having to go back out, and they do. They go back out into the surrounding empire, the Roman Empire. God is at work in our lives. He gives us this message. We are his ambassadors. Speak it. Speak truth. And it may look like no one's paying attention. It may look like people don't want to hear it, and they probably don't. Speak it anyway. And speak it nicely. We don't have to get, you know, if you're online and you're interacting with people online, um, whether you do that or not is up to you. But if you do, be kind. Before you type something, before you get angry at someone and say, think about speaking that to someone's face. And then don't type anything you wouldn't say. We can speak the truth nicely. It's, it's easy to think that no one knows who I am. and to, Don't, don't. Don't. Speak the truth in love, with kindness and compassion, uh, as Jesus did here. And who knows what God will do with it. Let's pray. Lord, we do so thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to come and to lay down his life for us. He lived a life that showed sacrifice. And then he died as the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would carry that message forth, the message of hope, the message that you care about this world, you care about the people of this world, and the message that truth is still true. May we take that into our world and our society. May we pray for people who are so deceived, who don't want to hear truth. May we kindly and compassionately speak it to them. Use our lives. 
May our lives make a difference to our generation. You've put us here deliberately. This is the time we're here. So may we make fullest use of it. We pray in your son's precious name.